Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This is all about justifying uh, religious belief. Worldviews talk about all kinds of things like evolution and um, science and, 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 and art and poetry and whatever. It's all part of a world. We're just talking about the religion part here. So. And then we'll look at these two simple little ones, Rick Wade, uh, that gives us examples of bad arguments for beliefs and bad arguments against somebody's belief. Just little, little notices that we're not doing ourselves any favor by trying to justify beliefs with bad arguments. Privatizing our belief is a good thing because it, it is your belief, but the thing is, like, it's very hard to be a dualist, like a dualistic. That, 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 that's the choice of most people. I'm going to privatize what I believe spiritually, and then the trick is to go to a biology class or to live in this ever-increasingly secular culture that doesn't believe in God, and the numbers are rising, and, and reconcile the two. Um, how we've reconciled them is we basically said science and academia in general, the social sciences and the natural sciences are telling us the way things are. And religion is what we believe in our private faith. But that's a long, long way from synthesis or reconciliation. And you can really become schizophrenic. That's what theologians have done, trying to show that bearing your religious beliefs without even trying to, to, to show how they're meaningful. Like, quite frankly, if somebody stood up in a biology class and said, I'd like to talk about intelligent design a little bit, just at least talk about the theory in a neutral way, just for, as an example, knowing that only 5%, 5.5 believe in God, intelligent design says that there's a God behind evolution. There's a mind. Stephen Hawking comes close. He's not, Paul Davies, the physicist, comes close. There are a lot of legitimate physicists. They're being ridiculed. They're being hammered by people like Richard Dawkins, the dominant physicist, but they're standing up and they're writing books saying we should be discussing all of the options. Science is supposed to be looking at all the evidence. You've got 5.5% of biologists believing in God. They won't look at all the evidence until you tell them. If you believe in God, you have a right for them to, to tell, tell you, I think, somehow, somewhere, that there's a theory out there by a bunch of fanatics, at least talk about it, because I don't think they're fanatics. They're PhDs from Harvard and Yale and Chicago and Vanderbilt. And like, there's some major people out there saying, we've been censored. If, you, if we don't support evolution as blind and godless, we're censored from, from scientific magazines. From the journal editors won't, won't publish our stuff. But we're, we're getting them published in books. I'm, go, I'm going to use a book next term, I think, by one of these people. Because it, it, I, think it's, I think the other side of the story needs to be told that there is a way to put God into academia. It doesn't, like, at least the theory that evolution isn't this, because that's the that's big one. That's where the big fight is. Even ethics is all about evolution. 
like ethics evolve, the society evolves. It's all, all the stuff comes from the theory of evolution, that you and I have evolved from one cell or whatever, and, and, and the horses became dinosaurs or dinosaurs, all of this. One species became another. There's just a massive confusion about all of this in the minds of most people. Some of us think that, like the Pope, that, that there's, there's room to discuss religious belief without destroying the whole thing. I can teach a class on religion and science and do an awful lot of science without, you know, like it, it's not all about God. Like you, you can actually reconcile some disciplines here with a little bit of work. Instead of just having the presupposition, there is no God, so it's not worth talking about. I'm just saying if we privatize, we're going to be ignored. You know, we actually had a name for it. We called ourselves existentialists. And we were basically saying, existentialism, I'm thinking of, I won't give you the names, there's no point. But it, it, was, the, it was the point of view that religious belief, you'd read the scriptures or whatever religious document you believed in, and you'd have this personal feeling, this encounter with the scriptures. They meant something. You felt the truth. But you never claimed that they were historically true or that it made sense rationally or scientifically. You just kept that to yourself. We tried that. That was early Christian theology for the first half of the 20th century. We became existentialists. And what happened? The churches started just folding like a house of cards. That's why the Protestant denomination went down. It's, it's losing every year now, percentages. If, if you privatize the thing, if you think it's all just your subjective feeling, but it has nothing to do with the culture, whatever, eventually people are saying, gee, if it didn't happen, like just, just for instance, like Christ rose from the dead as a Christian belief. Now, what we were being taught in the first half of this century was that it doesn't matter whether he really rose, because, of course, science doesn't like miracles, and science wouldn't accept the resurrection from the dead. That would be scientifically un 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 untenable. So what we should do is privatize our faith and tell ourselves, or, or just experience the risen Christ in our own heart and not worry about proving it. Now, after about three or four decades of that, the church start un started understanding that, wait a minute, like I'm believing this, but... I don't believe it happened. I'm believing it's kind of just symbolic. Boom, the numbers just drop. Because people start saying, I want something to believe in that's true. Not that it just feels good, surely. Like, it didn't work. It can compete. It doesn't mean that God is an object of science. It's a different, it's a different set of rules, but it's the same method. Religion, like science, should look for evidence, should use reason, should avoid illogical arguments, should use rational arguments. There's all kinds of things you can do, and it's the same method, exactly the same method that science takes. The only, the only hurdle you really have to get over, and it's a tough one because we've grown up with this hurdle, especially if you're not religious at all or spiritual, but even if you are, it's a threat. The hurdle is that dominant, brainwashed belief that science is giving us the truth. And that religion is just faith. Like science tells us how creation occurred. It tells us why this is happening and why that's happening. And if you're religious or spiritual, it's completely different. It's just what it means. It's not what happened. You know, for a Christian or a Muslim, just to give you an example, this is 56% of the world, these two religions, to believe that, that it doesn't matter whether Muhammad lived, doesn't matter whether Jesus did all these things. 
if we really took that attitude seriously and privatized it and said, it just matters what it means to me. These are historical religions of the book. Jews, Christians, and Muslims believe that they have a history. And the history actually did happen. These, this is not like some forms of Buddhism and, and, and some other religions. I, I can't give you the details, but I mean, there are some myths in some religions. Deliberate myths to tell stories about what happened. And no one, no one in that religion is concerned with trying to make them historically and scientifically accurate because we know they're myths. But if you're a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim, we're not happy with being told that our scriptures are myths and symbols. We insist that they're real. They happen. And uh, I don't know how you can, uh, although despite the fact that theologians were telling us, don't worry about whether they happen. Don't worry about whether they're real as long as it's real to you. It, it, was, it was a terrible descent into, um, into privatization that just ignored academia and ignored, ignored the other disciplines and, and just drove us right out of the universities pretty much. You know, Peter Kreeft, who writes the handbook that we're going to use, um, he teaches at Boston University, which is dominant, predominantly Catholic, and he says, I watched 50% of these students, all of whom had come with faith to this religious place, walk out atheistic. But when you go to a religious institution like Kreese is in, the best there is, one of Boston's one of the best there is, and he sees that these other disciplines, the stuff that religious people who come there religiously are, are just hammered by that stuff. We have to fight back. Privatizing it isn't enough because you're feeling the schizophrenia. Like it's a threat. And what do you do? People need to hear this. And not just for religion. This is the most important stuff, but for ethics. And for, quite frankly... If you brought this kind of attitude to other, other departments, um, just call it the philosophy of science. You know there is such a thing as the philosophy of physics, the philosophy of chemistry, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of political science. There's a philosophy of everything where you step out of the discipline and you look at the discipline and say, what are its presuppositions? What are its dominant biases? What is it, what is it assuming? And, and what, is it, what, what is its basic paradigms? You'd be surprised how many of those things are unproven assumptions and, and how much they exclude. The writing of history, all of that stuff is a threat to anyone who has religious beliefs. I'm just going by these stats we looked at last week, those 100,000 university students, and it said about 90% had some religious, or whatever the figure was, huge percentage, had a, either religious or spiritual beliefs. A lot of them pray, something like 80%. Like this, I've got good books at home, you know, how we could be talking about religion in every different discipline. There's people writing books on that. That doesn't mean we're going to turn... By the way, I'm not going to come in next week in a big black cloak and say we've taken over the country, uh, me and a few of my friends as Americans, and we're going to take it all over, and we're going to force all of you to believe what I believe. Nobody's going to do that. We're just basically saying we are religious, spiritual people, and we are ridiculed in an academic and a, a, a society like this because we're unarmed we don't have any way to fight back, and we've given up. They're basically saying everything we believe, every decision we make, everything we do, everything we think is determined by physics and chemistry. Now, I hope no one really believes that, because if you do believe that, I would say there might be a contradiction there. It might even be self-refuting. There's a logical fallacy for you. Something can refute itself. How can you go on knowing you're making free decisions when, you're, when you actually believe in, let's say, biology 100, that everything is predetermined by DNA. 
Most biologists don't touch this one. This one's too hot. They don't want to flaunt the thing that, but Richard Dawkins and uh, W.O. Wilson and some major biological superstars that write tons of books, they're all more than happy to tell you in their books that everything is determined by every thought. That's why you believe what you believe. That's why you're, you believe in tarot cards, or that's why you're a Muslim, or that's why you're a Christian. You believe because your DNA forced you to believe that. You had no choice, and you don't even have a choice whether you like it or not, because whether you like it or not is determined too. It's, it's an insanity thing. Um, it, it, if everything is determined like that, I'm not just sure what the point of life is. Let's hope that's a lie. Let's hope there's something wrong there. But when you exclude God from biology class, that's what you get. You get, it looks like everything is a closed universe and that everything causes something else and something else. And if we knew enough, we could probably predict everything that's going to happen to every person that ever lived because it's all predetermined. Just by physics and chemistry. And if we knew enough, we could, we could tell you how you're going to, how it's all going to turn out. I mean, there's too many causes, too many people, too many, too many factors to do that. But in theory, we could figure it out if, we, if, we could, if a computer could put in all those factors. What I'm saying is, when you read these things, just ask yourself, is that where I am? I believe because of these sociological reasons. Most people believe because of the psychological ones. We accept the sociological ones, though, as facts. Nobody's saying these are wrong. We're, like at least these, the sociological and the psychological, most of them are probably right. We believe because it makes us feel good psychologically. We believe because our society has determined in a strange sort of way what we believe. That's right. That's exactly right. But wait a minute. Just because it feels good, does that mean it's true? And just because your society tells you this is what you should believe, is that true? Like, that's all he's asking. That's all I'm asking. Just look at what the problems are. Let's admit that we are almost determined. Our society, sociologically, it's almost a pure determinism. Marx would say it's complete determinism. I'm saying, yes, I admit, not a Marxist, but I admit that a lot about what we believe is because of who we are, where we were born, who we were surrounded with, our parents, our family, our friends, our culture, our society. Yes, yes, yes. That determines what I believe. But the simple comment that Sire makes you want to consider, you come to a stage, and here you are right now. You're the age of majority. You're the age of consent. You're the age where you can think for yourself. And it's time to ask the question, yes, society has determined who I am and what I believe, but is it right? You could ask that question. Are we free? Are, are we determined by our physics and chemistry, or are we free? That, that'd be a fair question. If, there, if it ever came up where there's a context to ask that, but it's not something that they seek out, obviously, because that's philosophy of biology. And as far as I know, it's not taught here. I love this one. And it's true. There's, none of these are lies. I believe sociologically because it's all I know. That's what I know. And uh, it's all I understand is another one. You know, the last one, of course, is I've been brainwashed. But, and quite frankly, I guess he's made a point but you know when you say, here's, here's what creeps are saying. When you say, I believe this, so this is why I believe because like, I just don't know anything else. Creep says, maybe it's time you found out. You know, not creep, but sire. Like, I think he's got a point. Do you want to live intellectually maturely or do we want to just have fun, right? And of course, the answer is obvious. We want to just have fun. No, we want to live intellectually maturely so we can have intellectual fun. 
if it's all we know, surely, at some stage in our life, we're going to ask the question, is there anything else out there? Look at the multiculturalism. There's no excuse now. We're sitting beside people who have completely different presuppositions, completely different cultures. There has to be some kind of curiosity here about the differences. Like we can learn a lot from other people. But if, we're, if it's all we know, then it's time to find out about other things. And if it's all we understand, there's no excuse for that either. There's the internet. There's all kinds of ways to understand other cultures. So Kreeft is saying the sociological reasons are fine. That's the truth. We don't like being brainwashed, but the other ones make sense. It's all we know, it's all we understand, but there's a time to move on and see if there's something else to be known and something else. You'll find life is like that when you get on this. You're here now, you're the elites in the culture. We're, we're the educated few, so we're going to be on this intellectual journey seeking knowledge and more and more evidence and more and more. And it's, 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 it, it really broadens the horizon, so we no longer are determined by the culture. And you start seeing things like the philosophy of science and the philosophy of religion. You start questioning the more you know about why do they just rule out God? Why do they think that DNA is... like You start asking questions after a while. But if you say it's all I know and there's nothing I can do about it, that isn't true. Sociologically explains why we believe what we believe, but that isn't, should, that's not the place unless you want to live in some small town and never see more than 18 people in the rest of your life and not travel, and not understand anything. Now, there are psychological reasons. All of these make sense. I believe what I believe because it gives me meaning. It gives me an identity. It gives me a peace. It gives me a feeling of goodness. It makes me feel good. And then, of course, it's a crutch for the weak. They always throw a bad one in at the end. But yes, it does give you meaning. Yes, your belief does, does make you feel good. It gives you an identity. That's why we believe it. It works. It's the pragmatic test. It works. And yet, the question is, as Creep says, how do you know, though, it's true? Just because you feel good doesn't mean that you're believing something that's true. Just because it gives you an identity doesn't mean that it's true. It's time to go the next step. This is why we believe, but should we believe this? It's the bigger, mature question. Then you're in the philosophy of religion. Then you're in the quest for justifying belief. We shouldn't be satisfied with anything that's important. Like, I can let go, how do airplanes fly? I'm sure there's a, there's a, there's a simple answer in physics, but if you start out, if it's questions that affect my life and your life, deep, ethical, religious questions that could change the tone of our life from a good one to a mediocre one. We really should be in the business of finding out about, without being a theologian, anyone can do this. Anyone can investigate these things. We're going to strike the method here and look at, look at how it's done, but we're not going to do it all here. We're just, going to, we're just going to do it theoretically. But We should all be doing this about things that are important, to live a decent, enriched, full life, I won't go through my harangue about what philosophical reasons there have been given about what life's meaning is all about. It's not just about pleasure and happiness and money and material things. It's far deep. All of those things fail. You can never have enough money. You can never have enough material things. You can never have enough happiness. You can never have enough of... All of these things are meaningless in the long run. To really understand and have an enriched, full life, there's so much more. And it comes with questioning... Why do I believe what I believe? I'm old enough now to know better. Um, 
it gave me an identity, it gave me a meaning, but maybe there's something greater in store for me. Maybe there's something more. It comes through education. There are religious reasons. Even religious reasons don't make the cut here. You know, for, for, uh, for James Dyer, he's a tough old bird. Um, he's talking about, now he thinks some people believe what they believe because religious authority, because the Bible, the Quran, some religious leader. That's true, a lot of people. Some people believe because Christians, for instance, other religions, but Christianity for sure, believes because they're convinced that there are miracles. Now, like, I'm not, I'm not against miracles. I, I think Sire's a little rough here, but um, Sire's a little careful by saying that if you think your belief is true because it's justified, there's a miracle that backs it up. I mean, you can go to pretty much every religion and find miracles that back them up. And atheists and skeptics have used that against religion. David Hume, H-U-M-E, the major patron saint of uh, atheists or skeptics, uh, he's also 1700. David Hume would say, if this religion has miracles, and this religion claims miracles, and they're both claiming that they're authentically true because of these miracles, they, they're both wrong. Which, of course, is a bad argument. They're not both wrong. One could be right. They both could be wrong, but one could be right. But miracles don't solve the problem. All, creeped, uh, all Sire is saying is, yes, that's evidence. That's at least something. You've got a Bible or a Quran. That's why you believe. Or Bhagavad Gita or whatever. Or some you know, new, newer version of, of, of these things. That's why you believe. But you still have to ask the question. Do you know what a logical fallacy of begging the question is? I believe the Bible. It's a logical fallacy. I believe it and it's true. Because it says it is. And... And the Quran would be the same. It's, it's the word of God. It's, it's, but it begs the question of whether it's true. Like, it, I, I, I have to give you some evidence why I believe the Bible or the Quran. You have to, you have to go through the, like, where did the text come from? Who wrote it? Were there witnesses? Like, it's not just I believe because I, this thing because I've always believed it, or I believe because it says it's the word. There's all kinds of people who claim that they've written they've written holy scriptures and the word of God. And um, the trick here is you can't just take something on religious authority like, well, it must be true. That may be the reason why you believe. You've believed the religious authority all your life, if that's the case for some some of you. Uh, but the next step, as Sire's trying to say, the next step is to make it your business to look for the evidence. Look for the rationale. Like, why do you believe that? Why do you take that as authoritative? Why do you take that? This isn't a legitimate question, you know. Like, this isn't for you, by the way. Like, to give reasons to the person beside you for what you believe. It's, it's, it's for you to give yourself the reason. So you can, you can be assured, at least feel that you don't just have a, an irrational faith or a deep faith, but you have a tested faith, a critical faith, a reasonable faith. That's what we're after. I almost called this class reasonable faith. That was my first choice. But who knows what that means until you do now. It's a reasonable faith. It's a faith in what we believe that's been tested by reason and evidence and logic and, and, and answered criticisms. And it's done all of the things that you have to do. Just sitting there saying, I believe this because authority or because it, there's a miracle I think that happened or because I've had an experience of God or because I, I, I have deep religious experiences, mystical experiences. Like, who doesn't in the New Age, right? 
Like what the text does is Shirley MacLaine is pitted against this great Christian writer, uh, Blaise Pascal. Pascal has this vision, you know, this 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 quick vision of of, of God, and that converted him from a mathematical agnostic into a religious, you know, powerhouse. But Shirley MacLaine has, you know, who's an actress, but she's also one of the leading New Age writers about her little trip where she leaves the earth and she looks back and she sees the earth down there and she, she, she's shown that we're all spiritual beings and we're all one. That's an experience. So Sire is warning you, if you believe your belief just because you experience it and it feels good, but all of these religious reasons, it, it, like this is close to the psychological one, I've experienced something deep. That doesn't guarantee it's valid. You could be an experiencing illusion. We don't know. I mean, this is not a simple, there's a whole philosophy of religious experience. Like book after book, because a lot of people like to base religious belief on, I felt it. I feel mystical experiences. It's not enough. It's, it's important, but it's not enough. The Bible, for one thing, this is uh, the first letter of John, says something like, test your experiences. They have to coincide with what the scriptures say, what, what, what other things, especially the scriptures say. It's not just, what he's saying is in John's first letter is don't accept every experience as truthful. It's so obvious how we can be deluded. Luther said one time, when twilight comes along, one of these great Christian theologians, when twilight comes, you look out in the distance and you, you can't tell if that thing is a stick or a snake. Like, reason deceives us. And this is just something that, that's physical. Now, if you want to talk about something that's spiritual, I mean, we can really easily be deceived. Most people base their religious belief on feeling good, experiencing the truth of it, or feeling that it's true because I've experienced it. The text tells you rightly so. There was a famous psychologist, William James. He's mentioned in the text under this, under this religious section. I'm, everything I'm saying here is fair game, right? I, I, I'm just trying to highlight what's important here. William James talks about what a mystical experience is. And one of the important things he says is, it feels true to the person experiencing it. It has, his, his funny word is, it has noitic value. It's noitic, it's truth. It's the same word that ends up in cognition, gnosis, noit. It just means knowledge. So William James makes the point, a lot of people base their beliefs on experiences. but And those experiences, he says, he's written this book, William James, called The Variety of Religious Experience. William James, he's the first that we know of to analyze and study religious experiences. And he assured us of this fact, and this is what makes Sire pause and say, wait a minute, now we have to be careful then if he's right. It feels true to the person experiencing it, but there's no way that somebody watching that person from the outside could feel that truth. It's a private experience. And, and it's not justification in itself. To justify it, you'd have to show somebody else that it's true. And we can't do that unless they have the same experience. Um, and, the, and, and quite frankly, my other point was, not only it, it's, are these experiences limited to the person experiencing them, my other point had been that the experiences that people claim are radically different. 
Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues.